Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're in our monthly uh, Jonah session this morning. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. You'll find that on page 920 in the, in the Pew Bibles there. Uh, last month, we looked previously at Jonah's rebellion uh, against the Lord in his calling to witness to the unrepentant city of Nineveh. Uh, in Assyria, and we've seen the the devastating consequences, to be sure, of Jonah forsaking that calling, and uh, of his moving further away from the Lord. You could say both spiritually and physically, him continuing to go down into the boat, um, so to speak, and then the resulting judgment in God's uh, providence upon Jonah and in his being tossed into the sea. We now come to this passage this morning, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1, one that is uh, most familiar to all of us, perhaps what the the book of Jonah is most famous for, uh, beginning in that verse. But what is important for us to see here this morning, and what I uh, hope comes across, is uh, what we'll see is, is the pressure of the Lord and of his mighty hand upon Jonah in his distress, ultimately forcing him to come to grips with his sin and turn back to God in his saving mercy. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Thus far, the reading God's word this morning. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, many, many years ago, your son just shortly after his resurrection, spoke to his disciples and opened their minds to understand all the things of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, and how he is at the center of them all. Lord, help us to see Jesus, even in this text that we read here this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, how many of you know where the deepest part of the ocean is? Okay, Uh, the deepest known point in all of the Earth's oceans is an area known as Challenger Deep. 
Uh, it's named after the HMS Challenger, whose crew, believe it or not, first sounded the depths of this part of the ocean all the way in 1875. Uh, other soundings, of course, followed, heightening that depth count. But Challenger Deep is located in the western Pacific Ocean in the southern end of, and this might sound familiar to you, Mariana Trench. That's where the deepest part of the ocean is. Close to 200 miles southwest of the island of Guam, get this, Challenger Deep is approximately 36,200 feet deep, roughly seven miles. Can you imagine that? Drive your car down the road for seven miles and picture <laughs> your car plunging to the depths of the ocean floor at Challenger Deep. Seven miles. That's insane. And you can only imagine if you were at the bottom of that part of the ocean, uh, the, the amount of pressure that would be upon you as you go that far down. If you were to take a dip into the ocean, or even a lake for that matter, even, even a few feet, and you'll notice something happening to you. Uh, you feel an increase of pressure on your eardrums, right? And it forces you to come back up because you can't tolerate that feeling. Well, if you, were at, uh, if you found yourself at the bottom of Challenger Deep, I don't think you ever will, but uh, if, if anyone were to, the amount of pressure that uh, would be around you in the water would push in on your body, causing any space that's filled with air to just collapse. That's air compressing. The lungs would collapse instantly. And at the same time, pressure from the water would push water into the mouth, filling the lungs back up again with water instead of air. It's, uh, it'd be a horrible dilemma to ever happen to the human body. And that's why, of course, special vehicles are used to explore the ocean deep. In a similar gut-wrenching way, our man Jonah experiences bodily torment in the sea, albeit with a different kind of pressure upon him. Call it the heavy hand of the Lord. And as we've seen, uh, even throughout chapter 1, Jonah disobeyed the commands of the Lord. And in his disobedience, he betrayed his very identity as one who is a prophet to bring God's word to a people who needed to hear it. And in so doing, he was brought to the depths, not only of the sea, but the depths of distress and discipline by the hand of the Lord. But as our text this morning in chapter 2 shows us, there is a purpose to all of this. And we can't miss, first of all, that God does bring strong discipline upon his wayward children when they persist in impenitent sin and ignore their calling as one of his children. But even in seasons of our lives where this pressure of the heavy hand of the Lord is upon us, its intended purpose is to bring us back to him, to call on his name in faith and obedience, bringing us to repentance and thanksgiving. Now, when talking about discipline, I, of course, need to be very uh, careful here. Um, a theologian, D.A. Carson, he's very encouraging when he says that there really is no one-size-fits-all passage about suffering 
and um, how discipline is involved in all of that and interpreting all suffering through that one lens. For example, we could think of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Uh, Jesus' disciples questioned why he was blind, and they said, uh, who has sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. Um, so in that way, we are not to interpret all suffering of, of mankind um, to be the result of someone's sin. God does choose to work through um, suffering people uh, unto his glory as a witness. D.A. Carson says a Christian would be foolish to think that every instance of suffering he or she undergoes must necessarily be the result of God's disciplining hand arising out of a particular sin. Just as a Christian would be foolish to overlook the possibility that God may be inflicting suffering in a disciplinary fashion. Uh, he continues, and I can do no further justice to, to how he responds to this, so I'll just I'll read what he says here. In any suffering, or in any other event for that matter, God is doubtless doing many things, and that can be very hard for our tiny minds to grasp. It follows that when we face suffering of any kind, we should use the occasion for self-examination. God may be speaking to us in the language of a wise heavenly father who chastens those he loves. Such chastening may be God's response to specific sins in our lives. It may be a more general way of, of toughening us up in this broken world so we will stop thinking that God owes us good health or that our clean living and organic food guarantees us long and robust life. Or it may be that God has a bet going on with Satan. Think of the story of Job and what happened with him there. So our self-examination ought to be honest and any repentance should be forthright. And this is very important what he says here. But we should not whip ourselves into thinking that the crippling accident that we just endured was a function of our sin. Even if it were, the remedy is always the same. Flee to the cross and trust our good and gracious and holy God. And it's not inconceivable. In other words, it's, it could be conceivable that we may conclude with Job that this suffering cannot be God's punishment for specific sins in our lives. That's from D.A. Carson. But in the context of what we see here and what we read of in chapter 2 and, and then seeing the context in chapter 1 of Jonah, this is clearly the Lord taking Jonah through this trial because of his grave sin. And Jonah knows it full well. And that scene is set in verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The scene is set in God's providence, even in his mercy in providing the, the means for Jonah's rescue here, even in spite of his stubborn disobedience. This was the beginning of drawing Jonah back to himself. And the Lord keeps Jonah alive in the belly of the fish for three days and nights before Jonah prays. We sometimes, I think, have this 
this picture, and it could be based off of, uh, of children's Bibles or cartoons that we've seen of the story of Jonah, uh, of Jonah being in this, this cavernous belly. You can picture the ribs kind of, you know, overflowing or, uh, you know, arching over him in the belly of the fish and all of that, or, you know, like Pinocchio, you know, that kind of imagery of being inside this huge cavernous belly of a fish. But a part of me wonders if this was not just such an excruciating experience for Jonah, being in a very tight, enclosed space, the throbbing of the fish pressing up against him, water continuously coming in and lapping and splashing him in the face, to, for him to be able to then just bring this prayer to the Lord. And in Jonah's prayer, he reflects on his discipline in verses 2 through 6, and in the remainder of the, of the chapter, he reflects on his deliverance from discipline. <clears throat> well, let's look on his reflection of discipline here first. Beginning in verse 2, we read of Jonah's reflection of the disciplinary trial that was before him. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah remarks how, for him, this was literally a near-death experience. And we read carefully the words that he uses there. He, he personifies death, describes being almost being swallowed, you could say, by death, by being in its belly, not completely and fully digested, though. In the belly of Sheol, throughout the Old Testament, Sheol is uh, the moniker of the realm of the dead. And in this place, he calls out to the Lord for deliverance. So verse 2 is, is very much a general summary statement that Jonah was going through a trial here, harsh discipline, even near death. But what he then proceeds to do is elaborate uh, on this reflection a little bit in the following verses. Look at verse 3. Further reflection here. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Notice here that Jonah makes it very clear that it was the Lord taking him through this. He's coming to that realization. And God's sovereignty and his providence and his use of creation by his hand of discipline, it was God who cast Jonah into the deep. It was God's waves and God's billows that passed over Jonah. God has forced Jonah into this thrashing liquid box compressed on all sides from which there seems to be no way of escape. God has put Jonah here, and he is taking him through this. Jonah further comments that, that he has been driven away from the sight of the Lord. In other words, cast out is how he feels. He has been banished from the presence of the Lord there in verse 4. Literally, to be expelled is how that uh, word can be translated, similar to how Adam and Eve were cast out and expelled from the Garden of Eden. How Sarai expelled Hagar from the camp of Abraham in Genesis 16. To be away from the Lord is death. And it's almost as if Jonah was remembering the words 
of Psalm 88, verses 4 through 5, which says, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. And then uh, in verses 10 through 12 of that psalm, there's this questioning plea almost begging for an answer from the psalmist. He says, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And yet... In the midst of this loneliness, no doubt Jonah felt lonely, he yearns to look toward God's holy temple, continuing in verse 4. J. Sklar writes, as Jonah feels separated from the Lord, his thoughts turn to the place where the Lord's presence is most keenly felt, and that's his temple. As you know, the Jerusalem temple represented the earthly dwelling place of and location of the divine presence of Yahweh, Israel's God. And so Jonah yearns for this communion with the Lord that this temple provides as he sinks to his death. One other commentator said that the prophet Jonah laments losing the same divine presence that he earlier sought to escape. What a change in desire that you see already here in Jonah, all from the heavy hand of the Lord being upon him. And his hand presses in deeper into Jonah's shoulder here in verses 5 through 6. We see this chaotic reflection here of what Jonah went through. The waters closed in over me to take my life. That Hebrew word for, for life sometimes refers to the source of your life which you didn't have, you would never exist, such as the lungs or your neck. That which breathes, the breathing substance or being, soul, the inner being of man, this this Hebrew word is nefesh, describes all living things. The nefesh of Jonah being beaten by the blows of water. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Here Jonah, again, he revisits this language of, of this place of the dead and describes it as a, as a fortified city whose gates are shut and could never be open again. J. Sklar says at this point, Jonah has been going down and away from the Lord since the beginning of the story. And now he has gone down and away from the Lord as far as he can go. Here, Jonah realizes that he has no hope of saving himself. He is at wit's end. He is at the bottom. But what is impossible for Jonah, and what is impossible for us, is not impossible for God. Jonah was near death in the belly of Sheol, and what does God do? Jonah says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is 
a deliverance from discipline that Jonah will now continue to reflect on. Here's that pit language again that recalls Sheol, the deepest depths that Jonah finds himself from where he is delivered by God and finds communion with him. In his trial, losing all hope and strength, as he describes it, his life fainting away, Jonah remembers the Lord and he calls out to him. And this isn't just a mental assent to God's existence. However, this is a mental assent followed by action. Biblical linguists will tell us that in all in, in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, when God remembers or when someone remembers, often at times it refers to mental activity accompanied by physical action. That is to say, to act on the basis of knowledge. What does Jonah do? He remembers the Lord. What is he then going to do because of that? Jonah remembers who God is. And the very reality of his being able to remember God even in the first place is already a testament to God's grace and mercy going on in this story. And in his remembering, Jonah lifts up a prayer. The significance of what Jonah is doing, it cannot be overstated. The importance and effectiveness of prayer is most certainly emphasized of him coming to God once more in his holy temple. Perhaps not a reference to the actual temple this time, but to the presence of the Lord more generally speaking. Jonah remembers and prays to a merciful God. And then he does this interesting thing here where he proceeds to, to compare and contrast himself with idol worshipers. You see that in verses 8 through 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Steadfast love is that very famous Hebrew word you may have heard before, hesed, that describes God's uh, covenant faithfulness to his people. Jonah's eyes are fixed upon that. Verse 9, he says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Already we can see the beginning of repentance happening in this man. You can see his change of heart here. But here's where the important part of his prayer comes in. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There is a reason why Jonah is alive, why he's able to offer this prayer, why he's able to remember the Lord. It's because of the ultimate truth of this verse, salvation belongs to to the Lord. His tune is now changed with this key passage. One commentator writes, Jonah declares his loyalty to the Lord and extols him as the only source of salvation and deliverance. In imparting salvation to Jonah, the Lord moves the prophet from disobedience to repentance. And this word salvation that we read in our text is very interesting. Uh, typically, we're used to that word in, in theological discourse as describing our being saved from eternal death. Now, ultimately, the context of this, of this passage is going to lead to that. 
But the immediate context of this passage, salvation refers to deliverance from trial, which is how the term is commonly employed in the Old Testament. You can think of uh, of Exodus uh, chapter 14, where Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And as someone else duly notes, but in both cases, Old Testament and New, the emphasis is on the fact that salvation is found in the Lord. He is its source. It is because of his great power that he can deliver from trial. And it is because of his great mercy that he does so. And this is what makes him worthy of worship and praise. This is Jonah's reflection on his deliverance from disciplinary trial. But that's where it all began, with discipline. Jonah forsook his identity as a prophet of the Lord, commanded by him to bring a word of prophecy to a sinful nation. He fled and completely abandoned his calling, who he was called to be, and committed a very grave sin against God. We saw that big time in chapter 1. And what consequences did he reap? The heavy hand of the Lord. A hand that may be upon us when we forsake him and disobey him continually, unrepentantly, as his children. But discipline has a purpose. And that's where there's beauty in some odd sense, uh, where beauty is contained within the theme of godly discipline. It's, it's the beauty of a God who cares so deeply for you that he desires to bring you back to himself even if his hand has to be heavy upon you for a season. And in that pressure, we cannot help but cry out for deliverance. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Hebrews continues, For the moment, all discipline seems painful, rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I'm reminded of the words of Psalm 32, which is a psalm of of confession and forgiveness. It's worth to read the entirety of it. These are incredible words penned by David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. 
and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for all joy, all you upright in heart. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. You see, the only reason Jonah didn't see death was because one many years later would. Jonah endured suffering in discipline, not punishment. And if you confess Christ this morning and you find yourself committing grave sin and you suffer the consequences for it, whatever they may be, don't ever tell yourself in that suffering that you are being punished by God. God does not punish his people because one was already punished in your place. And if we in our sin, through very careful, prayerful examination, find ourselves in the discipline of the Lord and the pressure of his heavy hand upon us, remember the Lord, as Jonah did. Remember Jesus. In his discipline, Jonah was afraid of never being in the presence of the Lord again, but remember the cross. As the song goes, how deep is the Father's love for us? The Father turned his face away from his only begotten Son so that we could have the assurance of beseeching his face and return to him in faith and repentance. Jonah was quite near death. Jonah, or Jesus, was counted among the dead. But then three days later, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose. And with the resurrection and his subsequent ascension to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, there is one who hears our cries, there is one who hears our prayers, there is one who cannot wait to meet us where we are in our sin. Take your prayers of repentance to him, and he will hear you. Hebrews 4, again, 16, says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Remember, the Lord spoke to the fish as we read, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah was to continue this task that the Lord had for him. And when we pray for the renewing of our minds, for God to set us straight upon the path once again, he too, out of an abundance of grace and mercy, will set us forth on the path as his people once again. Believe in that. He has promised this. Don't let the darkness of sin have the final say. If you're going through a trial right now, 
and through careful, prayerful examination, you perceive it to be the heavy hand of God working in you because of your sin. Remember this trial, but remember too that when called upon by faith, God can and will deliver you. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account that we read here in Scripture, an historic event that took place so many years ago, but that speaks to us so freshly even today. Lord, we thank you for the cross, for the work of your son Jesus on our behalf, for his resurrection, for where he is now, seated at your right hand, where our prayers are offered unto him, Lord, that throne of grace and mercy. If we find ourselves today, Father, in a moment of darkness, grant us your grace and mercy. Give us the assurance and the comfort to know that when we lift up our prayers to you, you hear us. You hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.